Um, we are thrilled to have Pete with us, Pete Hughes with us. He leads KXC Church in London with his wife, B. He is on the uh, New Wine Leadership Team, and he is just a phenomenal communicator. But most of all, he is a great friend. So let's give him a warm welcome. Okay, so you're in this teaching series on the Creed. Um, I've listened to the last couple. I love it. It's so exciting, this journey of sort of plumbing the depths of our, our faith. And, and we're going to carry on now looking at this part of the, the, the creed. So why don't we just read it together out loud? On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I want to focus um, on the resurrection, but I want to focus on this one line, particularly um, in accordance with the scriptures. Um, these writers, these theologians that gathered in the fourth century around then in Nicaea, like they debated long, hard, they argued, blood, sweat and tears went into the wording of this creed. Why would they have put in accordance with the scriptures? Why not? On the third day he rose again, he then ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the, the Father. Why would they put in according to the scriptures. That's incredibly important as a foundation for our faith, and we're going to unpack that, that one phrase. But I want to start by looking at worldviews. Um, a worldview um, is a lens through which you see and make sense of the world around you. We all have a worldview, and our worldview is shaped by our upbringing, our education. It's shaped by the incredible experiences we have in life, you know, high tops um, moments. It's shaped by painful experience, the absolute lows. All of this comes together, meshes together to form this worldview. And as you look through this worldview, you begin to interpret the world around you. And sociologists tell us that worldviews, these ways of thinking, um, help us answer four core questions in life. Here they are. Where are we? Who are we? What's wrong with the world? What's the remedy? Any worldview, a political worldview, a philosophical worldview, a religious worldview, is trying to answer these questions. Where are we? Who are we? What's wrong? And what's the remedy? And worldviews nearly always come in the form of a story. They nearly always come in the form of a story. And pretty much every story looks like this. You have a beginning to the story, like a Big Bang moment. Theory of evolution, maybe Garden of Eden. There's a beginning to the story. There's then a fall. Things go horribly wrong. And, and that part of the story accounts for brokenness and injustice and the violence and the pain we see all around us. And then there's a remedy, right? There's a, there's a pathway through to heaven on earth. And just for this moment, forget an understanding of heaven, which is some sort of disembodied bliss. If you keep going up, you know, beyond the clouds, beyond the stars, beyond the different stratospheres, eventually you get to angels chilling out with God. Forget that understanding of heaven. And think of heaven as a place here on earth where humanity are fully alive, flourishing in every way possible. Every worldview has a pathway to human flourishing, right? So these worldviews come in the form of stories, and I just want to look at the two dominant worldviews that will be present in the room um, this morning. Number one, for the slightly older crowd, you don't have to sort of um, put your hands in the air and, and, and admit it, but the worldview you grew up with was modernity, the enlightenment mindset. And what modernity said in terms of this story, it basically said that what's wrong with the world is religion. It's kind of like 
old ways of knowing. And then we, we, we need to jettison the sort of like the supernatural type of stuff. And, and we need to embrace science. And how do we progress on towards this vision of human flourishing, this utopian existence? The answer is, if we can have scientific breakthroughs and technological advances, then essentially we can control our surroundings. We can make poverty history. Eventually we'll find a cure to, to cancer. And the, the key phrase of the Enlightenment project, the modern mindset, is we can become masters of our own destiny. We just need to keep advancing. Often this is referred to as the myth of human progress. Just keep marching forward and we will build heaven on earth. And for many of you, you grew up with that mindset all, all around. And around the 1950s, sociologists started to tell us that modernity was dead. The Enlightenment project had failed and that was devastating for a group of people that had grown up with that mindset. So why did modernity die? Why did the Enlightenment Project fail? And short answer is two world wars. And the devastation caused in the first half of the 20th century. And people began to ask some serious questions of like, we've had scientific breakthrough after breakthrough, we've had technological advances, we've split the atom! And then we created a bomb and created huge, huge suffering. Maybe the problem isn't out there that we can somehow control through science and technology. Maybe the problem's in here. Like maybe there's things, and not just in Hitler and Stalin and these like, you know, leaders, but like maybe it's in me, like greed and envy and, and hate. And like these things could grow in me and I could do some really stupid things. And maybe it's not out there and maybe the problem's in here. And I don't know if science is going to heal the broken heart and some of the, the mixed motives within our hearts. So people began to reject modernity, and they started looking for another story. They wanted something after modernity. They wanted something post-modernity. You got it, they wanted post-modernity. Um, so a younger generation in the room, the dominant worldview you've grown up with is, is post-modernity. And post-modernity basically said, what's wrong with the world? Well, what's wrong with the world is modernity. This kind of rationalistic mindset, everything has to be you know, proven empirically, and it's, it's all about that. And they said, no, that can't be right. What we need to do, the pathway to human flourishing, is we need to reject overarching narratives because they seek to control and, and dominate people. Truth should be relative. So you have your truth and good on you. And you have your truth and I have my truth. And we should just tolerate one another and each other's opinions. And then we can create harmony. If we keep going in that direction, we'll create a pathway to human flourishing. And about five years ago, sociologists started telling us Modernity's dead. Some would argue it's dying, it's just limping along. Others would say, no, no, it's, it's fully, fully dead. So why did it die or why is it dying? I, I think there's three main reasons I can think of. First one is very pragmatic. It wasn't working. Like, it promised so much, but there's still a huge amount of suffering all around the world. There's evil and injustice on our doorsteps, the gap between rich and poor constantly growing, and there's all this pain around. It's like if, if post-modernity was meant to create a pathway to human flourishing, it isn't working. That's not rocket science, right? There's a second reason um, that, it, that it's dying, maybe even dead, and that's because the, the philosophers got on board and just said, like, post-modernity is philosophically flawed. So um, this is a guy called Roger Scrutum. Um, an Oxford professor, he says, if anyone tells you there's no such thing as absolute truth, they're asking you not to believe them. So don't. 
And, and what he's doing is highlighting the flaw of the postmodern worldview that the idea that truth is relative, that, you know, relativity relativizes itself. The statement there can be no such thing as absolute truth is a statement claiming absolute truth, so it cannot be true. So the philosopher's got on board and it's like, wow, that is a major problem, I, I, I get it. But there's another reason we gave up on postmodernity, most in the room, if we're being honest. We're not philosophers, are we? Like, we don't spend a huge amount of time in deep thought, contemplating our navels. We're just regular people trying to get by in life and have some fun. And, and f f for that crowd, of which I'm a part, we gave up on it. Because if you take away overarching narratives in which we, we find belonging, purpose, and hope, if you take away the narratives, what, what are you left with? And the answer is nothing. And most people prefer something to nothing. They'd rather an imperfect story to belong to and to find purpose and a little bit of hope than no story at all. And we're living at a time, modernity's dead, postmodernity's dead or dying, people are looking for a story to belong to, to find purpose in the present and, and hope for the future. Um, they're looking for something. So what comes after postmodernity, and that's beyond my pay grade, I just have no idea. Something will come, right? I, I don't know what it will be, but I do know people are looking for a story. I, I want to tell you the story of, of a guy called Vedran Smelovich. And um, he became known as the cellist of Sarajevo. And um, he, he was well known as just a phenomenal cellist, part of the, the Philharmonic Orchestra of, of Sarajevo. And in the early 90s, Sarajevo was under siege. So bombs just regularly dropping from the sky. And the city was in devastation, lives being taken left, right and centre, everyone living in a state of terror and, and fear. Um, and then on one day, 26th of May 1992, something happened that changed his life. He was in his room practicing the cello, and then suddenly a bomb fell just outside the room where he was practicing, and the room violently shook, and his heart shook within him. And he ran to the window to see what happened, and this bomb had basically hit in the square outside the, the, the room where he was. Um, and a whole queue of people were queuing up for bread just to get enough food to get through that day. And 22 lives in a moment were taken. Buildings completely taken apart, reduced to, to rubble. And obviously heartbreak, trauma, incredible amounts of pain, trying to process all of that. And he woke up the next morning just like, I've got to do something. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do. There's just so much pain and disappointment and agony, you know, in this city. I, I don't know what to do. But he decided he needed to do something. So at 4 p.m., which was exactly the same time the day before where the bomb had hit and taken 22 lives, at 4 p.m., he dressed up in his tails. He got his cello. He walked into the, the square outside that place, and he started playing. And he played a piece called the Adagio in G minor. And for the next 22 days, at 4 p.m., he'd dress up in his tails, he'd carry his cello downstairs, he'd go into the square, and he'd start playing. 22 days to honor the 22 lives that had been taken. And what he was doing in this moment was trying to scatter seeds of hope to people that were in despair and had lost hope. 
As people heard the music, obviously it touched something in their hearts. But it was almost like beautiful music coming from another place. It was like music from another land. A place where there wasn't death, grief, crying, pain. And as everyone heard the music at 4 p.m., essentially their hearts started to say, I want to go there. I don't want to live life without my son. I don't want to live life without my best friend or my husband or my mother. I can't cope with this pain and agony. I want to go there to that place where the music is coming from or I want there to come here. I want to experience that place called home where I feel free and alive and safe. You can fade the the music out. It raised huge questions for the people of Sarajevo. Pain, trauma raises huge questions for each of us, right? And the question is, is, is there real? Does it even exist? Is there a place where there's no death, grief, crying, pain, where we can be fully alive? This is what C.S. Lewis said, essentially trying to answer that question. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger where there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim where there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire where there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it does not mean that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing what C.S. Lewis is saying is you can hear where the music is coming from and your heart longs for that place that's because you were made for that place you were made for that place that place is called home as I said we live at a time where people are looking for another story and we've got a story to tell right like we have the greatest story ever told to tell. It's the biblical narrative. It's the most beautiful story. And one of the things that breaks my heart as a church leader as I travel around a little bit is that we've done a really bad job of telling our story as the church. And the story, therefore, has been massively distorted. And I want to briefly look at the story with you. So there's a beginning of the story. There's creation. There's a fall. And then there's a pathway to heaven on earth, human flourishing. Let's just look at the story. It begins in the Garden of Eden. Um, God creates this garden of perfection, places humanity made in his image and likeness. He places them in the garden so they can enjoy the garden, live life fully. No sin, no sickness, no suffering. Humanity fully alive in the presence of God. Perfect relationship with their father. Perfect relationship with one another. Perfect relationship with the world around them. They're running round the garden, naked, unashamed, living the dream. Like, that is the beginning of our story. That's what we long for, right? Coldplay would call it para, para, paradise. Um, that's what we're made for. That's what we're made for. Fully alive in the presence of God. And then sin enters the story. And Adam and Eve grab hold of the fruit and they, they bite it. And because sin enters the story, all of created order begins to unravel. And pain enters the story, brokenness, evil, injustice. Um, And sin is essentially wanting to create your own kingdom in which you're king. 
They had a kingdom, God's kingdom, and it was a glorious one. And everything revolved around the king, God himself. And because they were in a relationship with the source of life, life flowed from God to them and they were fully alive. But the serpent comes along and says, well, if you eat this fruit, you could basically create your own garden. You don't have to be servants and sons and daughters in God's kingdom. Even though you still have a royal identity as a prince and and princess and, and you share in his rule, you could put that to one side and you could create your own garden in which you are the king and you call the shots. That's essentially what sin is. So Martin Luther, the brilliant Reformation theologian, defines sin as a life turned in on itself, where everything just revolves around you. Your dreams, your goals, your ambitions, your longings, your desires, you just circle around that. You know, you do whatever it takes to fulfill and satisfy those desires, dreams, and ambitions. And, and everyone's like, okay, that sounds good. My own garden, I'm king, I'll call the shots. And when you multiply that mindset, which is called sin, by eight billion people on the planet, it explains why there's so much pain and suffering. Because most people will do whatever it takes to push others out, to step on others, to get ahead so they can satisfy their own longings. And our culture celebrates it. Look after number one. Do whatever it takes. You deserve it. You're entitled to it. That's sin. And it accounts for the human suffering we see around us. So Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden. And they end up in the wilderness where there really isn't much life. And the rest of the Old Testament narrative is the people of God, the nation of Israel, trying to get home. They knew the scriptures inside out, by the way, the Jewish people. The Torah particularly, the first five books, and most particularly the first two chapters of how things were made to be. And as they're struggling as slaves in Egypt and later they're slaves in Babylon, they're like, we were created for Eden, fullness of life in relationship with God, running around naked and unashamed. We weren't created for slavery and pain and oppression and the deep longings we want to go home. We want to go home. We want to be in relationship with our Father. That's the beginning of the story, creation, and then the fall accounting for earthly pain. Let me tell you about the end of the story briefly. It looks a bit like this, para, para, paradise. Um, The end of our story has been massively distorted because Greek philosophy infiltrated our story and and messed it up. So if you were to go to the streets of Guildford and say, what do you think Christians believe about the end of the story? Most would say this, well, Christians believe, and it's funny because it's just stupid, but Christians believe that when they die, they'll leave their bodies behind and their souls will ascend to this disembodied bliss somewhere like way up there um, where they'll drink Red Bull with the angels and they'll play harps and they'll just chill out. And, and that's what Christians actually believe. And the tragedy is, some people in the, tragedy is that some people in the church believe that's the end of our story. That's not the end of our story. That, that's what Plato thought. Um, that's, that's his story. Our story isn't us ascending to some sort of disembodied bliss to drink Red Bull with the angels. Um, heaven, in the end of our story, it's not us ascending there. Heaven comes down. Heaven is best defined biblically as the place where God lives and where his will is done. Heaven comes down and God makes his dwelling place with humanity and everything around gets restored. So the Apostle John is writing down this vision in Revelation 21. He can see this restoration take place as God makes his home with humanity. He's like, suddenly there's no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. The former things, in other words, the earthly pain, the injustice, the inequality, all of that passes 
passes away and a new created order is established. He's like, I can see it all happen. Now, does that ring any bells, hearing John talk about no death, no grief, no crying, no pain? It sounds like Eden, right? No sin, no sickness, no suffering. Humanity fully alive in the presence of God. In other words, everything is being restored. And then in Revelation 21, the climactic moment is God sits down on his throne, which is indicative of his work now being complete. And he says these words, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. I tell you why that's stunning. Because in the Greek language, there's two words for new. There's neos, which means brand new, and kainos, which is something old that's made new. It's restored to its former glory. And when God sits down on his throne, he doesn't say, behold, I'm making all things neos. In other words, oh, Adam and Eve and everyone else just screwed this one up big time. Sack that. That will burn. Let, let's do another one. No, he says, behold, I'm making all things kainos. I, I'm going to come into this mess I'm going to heal and restore. I'm going to make it new so humanity, my sons and daughters, can live life fully in relationship with me, the Lord of life. That's our story. It's way better than drinking Red Bull with angels. Like, Why would we settle for, for that end of the story when our story is truly stunning? God's on a mission to make Guildford new, your workplace new, all of creation new. And how does God do it? And the answer is Jesus. And this is what you looked at last week in, in the creed, that God wraps himself in human flesh. Theologians call this the incarnation, Greek word, carne, meaning flesh, like in flesh. God puts himself in flesh. You know, and Pete spoke about chili con carne. Um, God wraps himself, not in chili con carne, but wraps himself in flesh um, and steps into the pain. Our God isn't a distant deity, he just shouts commands like, stop screwing up. Here's a few things if you want to get out of the mess. Uh-uh. That's not our God. Our God jumps into the mess and begins to heal and, and, and restore. He lives, he dies to wash away our sin, and he rises to new life. Well, one of the things I love about the, the story, the Christmas story particularly that we celebrated a few weeks ago, is, is the point where they name Jesus. Because names are really important, particularly in the, in the sort of context of the Middle East. Um, and they name this baby Jesus. Um, the Aramaic that you know, Jesus' mates would have called him, the Aramaic was Yahshua. The root word of Yahshua is Yasha. It's the Hebrew word for salvation. It literally means a wide open space. And in Hebrew thought, a wide open space is a metaphor for human flourishing. Like Eden was a wide open space. Nothing to restrict you where you're just fully alive. And Jesus has this name, Yahshua, Yahweh, Yasha, it's a fusion of those two words, literally means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh will lead you to a wide open space. And the name of Jesus contains the mission of Jesus, like God wraps himself in flesh to kick open a door in which we were imprisoned behind, opens the door and says, now in relationship with me, enjoy fullness of life, a wide open space. That's what Jesus was on a mission to do, to seek and save that which was lost, to open the door to the wide open space. So back to the, the creed. Why would these guys in Nicaea put in this statement, on the third day he rose again, great news, in accordance with the scriptures. Like, what does that add? And the reason they put that in is because they knew 1 Corinthians 15 super well, and they wanted to give a nod to 1 Corinthians 15. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind. This is the closest we get to Paul defining the gospel, okay? 
Um, Paul writes this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance. You can see Paul is building up, like, this is critical. Need to know information. This is of first importance. And here it is. Here's Paul defining the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Why does he keep emphasizing according to the scriptures? According to the scriptures. Why do the guys at Nicene, uh, Nicaea, as they write the creed, add in according to the scriptures? Um, and Paul writes this, because what he's trying to say is these events, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, they're all about the fulfillment of the whole narrative. You can't extract them from the narrative in which they sit, in which they belong. Um, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus are what God uses to make all things new. These are the events through which everything is restored to how it was meant to be. And the resurrection specifically is the turning point where all things are made new, where the new creation breaks in upon us. So this is why Paul says this later in the chapter. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. I, I love that. Like sometimes at KXC, people come up to me and say, your preaching's bad. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not useless because I'm preaching the resurrection. It might be bad, it, it isn't useless. Paul is basically saying, if, if you don't even preach the resurrection, if, if this isn't part of your story, it's, it doesn't matter whether your preaching is good or bad. It's like useless. It will have no effect. He goes on, so is your faith. If it isn't centered around the resurrection, like this hinge point where the new creation breaks in upon you, if it's not centered around that moment, it's useless. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. And that's why for Paul, the central point is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that fulfill the narrative and God is on a mission to make all things new. So let's just briefly look at the context in which we live out this story and proclaim this story. Because if you were to head to the streets of Guildford, most people would say like, nah, I don't believe in the resurrection. That's like crazy. That's so silly. Why would they say that? Let me just mention two reasons why I think most people dismiss it. Number one is because they've never studied it or even explored the resurrection. Um, you know, 40% of the population in the UK right now, this was um, revealed in a study called Talk Jesus recently, 40% of the population of the UK think Jesus was a mythical figure, not a historical figure, didn't exist. Basically on a level with Santa Claus, Peter Pan, nice guy, harmless, you know, some fun stories around him, he walked on water and did some cool things, but he didn't actually exist. 40% of the population believe that. If you Google search images of Jesus, you basically get loads of ones like this. You know, Luke Skywalker, who just happens to love sheep. Um, some really weird tech nerd with a halo. That guy totally freaks me out. But you, you get all of these images, and it's kind of modern people essentially saying, this guy isn't actually real. 40% of the population, they've never, ever studied the evidence. Like, it, it, it's not a little overwhelming evidence that Jesus was a historical figure who lived and walked. We've got overwhelming evidence surrounding his death, like documents, not just the, the New Testament, but outside scriptures, loads of documents around the death of Jesus, that he suffered crucifixion, this Roman form of death, which is just horrific. And we've got incredible evidence around the resurrection. 
um, I was going to try and throw in um, some of the different theories about the resurrection um, and then realized I just didn't have time and then heard that you guys are starting your Alpha course like in a week or so. And the Alpha course is an incredible opportunity to look at the evidence for the resurrection. Like I have total confidence if you really study all of the evidence that you'll be convinced that Jesus lived, yeah, that he died, that he actually rose again. But study it for yourself and um, head along to, to Alpha. Um, but this is what a guy called Lord Darling said, the former Chief Justice of England. I quote him partly because I love his name, um, but it's a, it's a good quote too. There exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. It's just, just so much evidence. So people don't believe it because they've never studied it, because they can't really be bothered to study it. There's a second reason and why people dismiss the resurrection without even studying it, because it doesn't fit their worldview. For the older people, it doesn't fit the worldview of modernity. Like, dead people don't rise, right? We've got the scientific evidence. You know, if you're a pure rationalist, it's like you've got to dismiss the resurrection because it doesn't fit your worldview. Um, Postmoderns dismiss it because it's like, oh, well, it's true for you, but it's not true for me. My truth is this, and all the best with yours. Um, and, and they go down that route. Um, so, but they, they dismiss it because they, they don't need to. And I, I want to suggest that is there another story in which the resurrection actually fits? People have dismissed modernity. They've dismissed post-modernity. No doubt they'll dismiss whatever comes next. But there is a story in which dead people do rise. And maybe that's the story. So this is what Tom Wright says. He says, The resurrection of Jesus itself um, offers itself not as a very odd event within the world as it is, but as the utterly characteristic, prototypical and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. It's not an absurd event within the old world. In other words, a weird one that doesn't fit modernity or postmodernity. No, it's the symbol and starting point of the new world. There is a world in which dead people rise. And it's called the kingdom of God. It's the story of God. A story where God makes all things new. I don't know if you've heard the story of a Portuguese sailor, Vasco de Gomes. And um, in the 1400s, the southern tip of South Africa, some of you might have been there. Um, it used to be called the Cape of Storms. And it was called the Cape of Storms because lots of people had tried to sail around that cape um, and had just experienced a shipwreck. They'd never made it round. Their ship was destroyed. They lost lots of people um, and cargo and whatever else. And there was shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck. Eventually, they decided, let's just stop sailing around this place. Like That makes sense, right? Let's stop unnecessarily losing lives and cargo. Um, and it became known as the Cape of Storms and no one sailed around it. And then one day in the 1400s, a Portuguese sailor just thought, come on, let's give it a go. It's been a while. So he gets his crew together and they sail around the Cape of Storms and they get round the other side, people intact, cargo intact. Um, and from that point on, it got renamed Cape of Good Hope. One man had been there, conquered, and it brought hope to everyone. And previously, you know, the Cape of, of Storms had cut off trade routes to India and the Far East, and, and there was no trade in that direction. And suddenly, after this one guy, it's like, we can trade with the rest of the world. It changed everything. This one guy who'd conquered the Cape of Storms and renamed it the Cape of, of Good Hope. That's our story. That's the resurrection story. One guy, humanity's representative Jesus, goes where no one had been before, conquered death, came out the other side, and all of his followers were like, yes, we can go there now. Death isn't the end of our story. Fullness of life awaits. God is making all things new. That's why we are called to be a people of hope. 
Like if, if death shouldn't frighten us, anything in this life shouldn't frighten us because God's conquered and he's on a mission to make all things new. Uh, I want to close with just one story then just to illustrate that God can take the messiest stuff and turn it around. A good friend of mine went for counseling with, with, with a, um, a nun actually and my friend was basically saying, my life is just a mess. Everything around me is messy. Relationships are falling apart. My career's a mess. There's breakdown in my family. Like, it, it, there's just crap wherever I look. And this is what the nun said to my friend. And I'm quoting a nun right now. So I'm quoting a nun. Um, she said to my friend, well, you do know that God takes the shit of our lives and uses it for manure. It's a nun that said that. Um, <laughs> God can take the mess and breathe life upon it and heal and restore. And here's a story of that. So my mum worked as a chaplain in a medical centre. And um, basically, this was quite a unique medical centre because they decided to do something, just pioneer a new project where you had all your GPs and if you needed sort of like help um, and med medical opinions and whatever else, you'd go to the, um, the GPs. Um, but they offered counselling as well, which is fairly standard these days. If, if it's not just a physical thing, but there's emotional stuff going on, then go and visit one of our, our counsellors. Um, but they opened up a third kind of wing and they're like, if you've tried kind of like medicine and you've tried counselling, but you're like still desperate, we've got this kind of chaplain person that will just pray with you. You know, if you're really desperate. Like, the medicine didn't work, counselling hasn't helped, then this strange lady called Annie Hughes, she'll pray for you. Um, and people were desperate, because when people are in pain, they're often desperate. And the medicine wasn't working, and the counselling wasn't fully working out, and they're like, I don't believe in God, but I'll try anything, and then go and visit my mum, and my mum would just begin to pray with folk. Um, this is a story of one woman that came to my mum in a desperate situation, and, and mum didn't counsel her, although she's a trained counsellor. She just put a hand on the shoulder and said, come Holy Spirit, effectively. Um, and then a, a year or so later, this lady wrote to my mum and said, look, I haven't seen you for a long time, but here's how the story ended. You probably know the beginning of the story, come Holy Spirit, but here's the end of the story. Anyway, so it goes like this. This is the lady writing her testimony. I was always one of life's achievers, fast lane material, a bright child with a privileged education and upbringing, not a wealthy family, but one rich in love, stability, encouragement, and with the right life values of goodness and kindness. Born into a small affluent village in the south of England, I was protected and secure from the big bad world, a picturesque Church of England primary school and a family involved in our village and church community. I was always identified as a very spiritual, gifted, pretty, articulate, artistic, kind, happy and popular child. She forgot to mention humble. Um, from university, my career flourished in advertising and marketing. Being blessed with prettiness and becoming very ambitious, I started to relish the world of impressive cars, money, status, city living, the glamorous world of business trips to Cairns and champagne breakfast galore. The charming men went with that too. The downward spiral was rapid. Pride selfishness started to consume me and I didn't like the person I was becoming irresponsible thoughtless superficial careless with money and my own safekeeping so I drank and parted even more to disguise my self-loathing and ignore the slippery slope I was heading down two failed marriages later I subsequently fell headlong into an emotionally abusive relationship with a married man who was unintentionally cruel 
Life began to rapidly crash. I was made redundant, suffered a stress-related breakdown, drank excessively, had to take myself through bankruptcy, got banned for drink driving, and there followed two years of weekly appointments with probation officers, bankruptcy trustees, courts, job centres, doctors, every relevant social service needed, and travelling by bus and foot to sell clothes, jewellery, and any belongings of value to pay the rent. Through all of this, the man who claimed to love me and wanted a life with me was nowhere to be seen and ran away from the reality. The cruelty and brutality Brutality left me barely able to breathe and my self-esteem battered. On top of all of the court cases and pressures, I was heartbroken and felt abandoned as the man I loved went off and parted with his executive friends and started a relationship with his secretary, who was a friend of mine. I remember my first session with Annie, the chaplain, who's my mum, and her gentleness and compassion touched me to the core. When she asked if she could pray for me and laid her hand on my shoulder to ask God to be in my situation, something changed forever. I walked home in floods of tears, awash. I'll never know how I walked the length of Hagley Road, but I knew that something was being released and could feel a warm love seeping in where there'd been such devastation, bitter coldness, rejection, darkness, betrayal and fear. My heart was still broken and my drinking was heavy, but after a bold step one bleak Saturday walking home in the rain with heavy shopping bags and a desperate sense of there must be more to life than this, I plucked up courage to walk into the church and seek help. I felt a tripwire physically stop me by the front doors as if God was pulling me in. It was time to reconnect with him properly after 40 years in the wilderness and I was ready. Still battling with self-esteem, scars and drinking, but working hard at my faith and Christian walk and coming to baptism in early 2007, I then hit a major downer late in 07 after yet another relationship knockback, still not having dealt with the first. I had a few days of total self-destruct with neat alcohol and no eating. By the grace of God, a friend dropped in and found me having severe seizures and called the paramedics to rush me to city hospital. In accident and emergency that bleak night, all I can remember is that the nurses could not even steal my body to have injections or sedatives and left me to it. I reached a peak of a seizure and knew that, and felt in my heart that this was it. I thought I was going to die. No one was near me. No one could see me. With all my strength, I pushed my body up and cried out as loud as possible, help. I know nothing of the next few days, only that my consultants witnessed a miracle in all my vital functions returning rapidly to absolute normality and the monitor monitors gently oscillating instead of looking like a thermonuclear device had gone off in them. At worst, they thought I could lose my life with the amount of alcohol poisoning in my body. At the very best, um, least, they thought I would be left with neurological damage or liver damage. To this day, since December 07, when I faced death, I've not touched alcohol or cigarettes and have no desire for them. My body is the healthiest it's been for decades and there's no damage. God has washed me anew. Life is so good. Last year, I was given the opportunity to go back into a high-profile marketing job with an amazing car, money package, etc., and really thought that this was the complete turnaround as I'd be going back as a born-again Christian with a different approach to everything. But it didn't last long as I was soon yearning to be effective to people in need and felt God's calling to use my past misery for his ministry. She quit the job, ended up working with teenage girls addicted to drugs and alcohol and helping them rehabilitate and begin a journey to fullness of life. Eventually she went on, God ordained, and now serves in her local church in a really tough part of her community. Like, how do you explain a story like that? Like, that is God taking the shit of our lives and using it for manure, right? That's what she's doing right now. Taking her story and, and bringing that hope to disadvantaged people. The only way you could ever explain it 
is the spirit of God. It's the only way you could explain it. And that's how Paul explained it. He said, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. This is what they were trying to say at the Council of Nicaea, that he rose on the third day to fulfill the whole narrative. What's the narrative about? God's on a mission to make all things new. He's beaten death. He's placed his spirit in you. And he says, partner with me. Be my partner in the renewal of all things. Why don't we stand? And if the band want to come up, we're just going to do a simple thing. We're going to close by just opening ourselves to the Spirit of God. So what I want you to do is just close your eyes. Um, if you're new visiting, nothing weird's going to happen to you. No one's going to kiss you or do anything awkward. So you just close your eyes and you hold your hands out in a posture of receiving. Um, and this is because there's no magic in this, but outward postures help us engage in inner realities. So as we hold out our hands, we're essentially saying, Lord, I, I want to receive a gift. And the gift I want to receive is the spirit of God, the spirit that you poured out at Pentecost and the spirit that you said is available for all who ask. How much more will the father give the spirit to those who ask? So as we have our hands open, we just say, God, would you come now and fill me with your spirit, with resurrection life? Would you stir hope where there's despair? Where there's pain, would you bring healing? Where there's mess, would you step into it and begin to reorder and restore? Holy Spirit, come.